There was once a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to him and said to his father, I want what's coming to me right now. So the father divided his property between the two of them. And it wasn't long before the younger son had packed his bags and was on his way to a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything that he had. And after he had gone through all of his money, there was a deep famine in that land, and he began to hurt. So he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop for pigs. And he was so hungry, he would have eaten whatever was in front of him, even the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. And so that brought him to his senses. Come on, the servants, my, farmer, uh, my father's farmhands, they sit down for three meals a day, but I'm starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Take me on as a hired hand. So he got up and he went to his father. When he was still a long way off, the father saw him and his heart pounding. He ran out to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. And the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, get a robe Get some sandals, put the ring on his finger, the family ring, and get a grain-fed heifer. We're going to roast it. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a wonderful time, a huge feast. My son is here. He was given up for dead, but now alive. Given up for lost, but he's now found. And he began to have this wonderful time. All this time, though, the older brother was out working. And when the work of the day was done, he approached the house. And as he was approaching, he heard the noise of dancing and music. And he called over one of the house boys. He said, what's going on? Well, your brother has come home. And your father has ordered a feast. Barbecue beef. Because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother, he stalked away angry. His father came out. And he refused to talk to him. He said, look how many years I've stayed here with you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go out on an all-out feast. His father said to him, son, don't you understand? You're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. But this is a wonderful time, for we had to celebrate. Your brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. As we begin this morning, if you would, let's pray together. O God of love, today my prayer for us gathered in the name of Jesus is that your Spirit would enable us to live as new people. And this is my prayer, that our love might be even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight, so that we can know and be able to discern and decide what really matters and will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. I pray that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes from Jesus Christ in order to give glory to you and to praise to you, O God. We know you hear us because we come in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So love is what compelled that father in the story that Jesus tells of the two sons, right? Love makes us do crazy, crazy things. Love makes us give money to somebody who's going to just waste it all, someone unstable. Uh, Love is also intangible, and it's sometimes not recognized for its value. Like with the older brother, he's there and loved by the father, and yet it's not received. Love compels us to stand and watch countless days, hoping and longing for the prodigal to return. And love is what drives us to dash madly onto the road to embrace the one that we care about. Love recklessly throws parties and celebrations, even when it's costly. I think love makes us do crazy things. Uh, So much of our favorite music is about love or love songs. I pulled my Facebook community, and uh, they shared with me some ideas, some different love songs. I think, Simon, we have a list of some of those up there. Um, And I don't think we can talk about Christian love or love in Christ, which is the series that we're starting Um, without taking stock of some of the things that we're breathing in, we're listening to, uh, songs that uh, are on the radio or in movies or that we listen to on dates. This is really the water that we're swimming in, right? And songs maybe um, like The Ring of Fire or I Can't Help Falling in Love with You by Elvis are classics. Some are more recent, like um, ones that I, I don't even know since you've been gone by Al Yankovic. I'm going to listen to that one, but it was on my list. Some of these are favorites of people because they were first dance songs at their weddings or a song that maybe their parents listened to as a song that reminded them of their love. And there's a reason, right, that we say things like, I'm just waiting for a knight in shining armor to ride in and sweep me up off my feet. Or other people might say, I hope that my love story will end happily ever after, right? It's because we live in a Disney-saturated love story, right? Um, And so I wonder, I find myself asking this question all the time, were the Beatles right and all we need is love? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but maybe a better love song for the sermon and the lesson before us uh, is this one. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Yeah. No more. So, so maybe this, uh, you know, what is love? We're asking this question, and I think it really is fitting because it speaks from the deep insecurities that we all have from being hurt by those around us, those that we love, right? And we're, um, it's also speaking to this idea that we're desperately trying to grasp love, and yet sometimes we don't even have a definition for what love really is, right? Um, in his book, What is Love, um, and it's titled, What is Love, the Spiritual Purpose of Relationships, this guy, Frank Velasa, says something really interesting. Um, he begins with that famous phrase, it is said that love is blind. And certainly this is the state of romantic love, We are temporarily blinded to any of the normal human frailties and shortcomings that our beloved may have. Or if we do see them, we think that they're part of the charm and are convinced that they are nearest to perfection, that they are the one. How many of you have said that? This is the one. Um, And that this feeling of love will last forever. In fact, we are so convinced that we start to reschedule our whole future 
based on this new relationship? What we don't realize is that we've been drugged by nature. Romantic love is a biochemical trick that nature plays on us in order to get us to reproduce. Once nature has achieved its goal, once we have mated and maybe reproduced, the romantic love evaporates. The drug wears off and we're thrown back into our normal state of perception. We look again at our beloved. Now no one look at your beloved and think, what did I ever see in you? What is that deformity on your chin? It's a goatee that Sean cut for me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So how do you know you're loved, right? This is a question that we ask a lot of times. And I think the movie Monsters, Inc. might shed some light on it. In this movie, monsters uh, look scary, but they're shown to be kind and gentle, right? They're complex creatures, and they just need to be loved, too. They're trying to exist, and they get their energy from sending a monster into a child's bedroom closet and scaring the human child, and that generates scream or energy for their uh, power. And, And the movie has a lot of underlying themes, but I think that one that shines the brightest for me is the theme of the love that Sully and Mike come to have for the child, Boo. And maybe it's prophetic in this movie because in many ways, uh, in, uh, in many ways it's prophetic because we have come to call our significant others Boo, but that's before its time. But um, Mike and Sully's love for Boo goes to great lengths, right? Mike actually does so much for the situation. He sacrifices his reputation and everything that he has. They get banished to the Himalayas, And uh, all sorts of craziness happens because of their sacrificial love for each other. And in this sacrificial love that Mike has for Sully and Sully has for Boo and they have for each other, they in turn save all of Monsters, Inc. by discovering how laugh is actually a more powerful, potent energy. And it's even a more humane way, or at least as humane as monsters can be. But throughout the movie... Mike and Sully yell at each other, they argue, there's questions, there's distrust and disgust, but loved is proved, not in the words said, but by the actions of self-sacrifice by the characters. And so my question for us is, is this default, is this love the default setting for being human? On Wednesday, uh, we marked the 50th year of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, and um, He was a great leader whose legacy reminds us that we have so much work still to do, especially the work of love. When our circles of friends and churches and schools and neighborhoods, cities, countries, and world remain so divided, and we have lots of work of love still in front of us, and we need to have more dreamers. We can too can have a dream. We need to dream of a world where people are not judged worthy of love by the amount of melanin in their skin or the place where they were born, but seen as the beloved of God. Because in each person and every living thing, we experience the love of our Creator. So Dr. King said this, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too heavy a burden. So is love default? Or is love a choice? Do the things we choose to love maybe impact our lives and impact what we uh, end up loving as ultimate? Um, I love this book, You Are What You Love, and I highly recommend it. It's by author James K. Smith, a Christian philosopher. And 
Um, he's written several books that are kind of heady and academic -y, and this is his accessible one. This is his one in common speech. And so I highly recommend to you, I think it's interesting that he finally was able to write clearly what he was trying to write in three other books. Um, he consolidated down to one. But um, you are what you love. And in it, he makes some claims that, yes, love is this default setting for us as human beings. We love and love all the time. And he makes some applications to our Christian life that love is actually maybe a better word than worship, that what we love, we worship. And so he says, as people, we're just kind of hardwired to worship things. But he throws it in there that you, you might not worship or love what you think you love, right? And, um, and so in his, in his book, I, I found this quite an interesting statement, that love is like an autopilot. He's using this metaphor, orienting us without our thinking about it. So I want to tell a couple stories about some ships to think about this idea of orienting and autopilot. Before autopilot, they had to use compasses. So listen to this story about um, an accident. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a, hear a, uh, convened a hearing to discern what had happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, along the Virginia coast in the thick fog, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and they, it sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. While it was Osmond Berry, the captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for five hours. And it was during this cross-examination that the New York Times reported that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of such compasses, uh, of masters of the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was the master of the Monroe. And the faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. This realization partly explains a heartrending picture recorded by the Times later that the two captains met and clasped arms and sobbed with each other on their, so, on their shoulders. The sobs of these two, two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. And so the reminder for us is this. If the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate it. We need to calibrate our hearts, turning them to be directed toward our creator, our magnetic north. It's, it is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves longings and desires and cravings are actually learned. We learn to love then not primarily by acquiring knowledge or information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits about how we do love. And since we're talking about ships, I want to tell another story. Uh, in The Kingdom of Ice, it's Hampton Side's compelling account of a failed uh, 19th century polar expedition to the North Pole. And uh, it was led by captain, or captained by Lieutenant George DeLong. Um, and you can look up the story about the USS Jeanette. DeLong's entire expedition uh, was set on this picture of the unknown North Pole laid out in maps by uh, a man named Dr. August Henrik Peterman. 
Peterman's map suggested that there was this thermometric gateway through the ice, and it opened into this vast uh, polar sea on the top of the world, basically a fair weather uh, passage beyond the ice. So DeLong's entire expedition was staked on these maps, but it turned out that he was heading to a world that just simply didn't exist. And as perilous ice quickly surrounded the ship, Sides recounts that they had to abandon and shed its organizing ideas in all their unfounded romance and replace them with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. Our culture often sells us these faulty, fantastical maps of the good life, and they paint this alluring picture that draws us towards them. But all too often, when we stake our expedition of our lives on them, and we set sail toward them with every sheet hoisted, we do so without thinking about it, because the maps are working our imagination, not our intellect. And it's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we've trusted faulty maps. And so I want to submit that there are three things we need to remember on this journey of life. It's first that our, our hearts are like a compass, and they point towards what we desire. Um, I love... The, speaking of ships, I love the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and the movies that have followed. And Jack Sparrow has a compass that points to what he wants, right? And this compass is seen as a tremendous gift, but it's also a deep burden that brings sorrow. It also lands him in confusion because like us, he doesn't always know what he wants. And then the second thing is that we need our heart, since our hearts are what determine that trajectory, um, then we need to make intentional choices to engage in practices and habits and activities that calibrate our hearts, our compasses, so they point towards God and not something else, not a false God or a small God. And third, and finally, we need to be sure that we have a trustworthy map to follow. Otherwise, even if we may know the direction to go, we may still end up in the perilous waters surrounded by ice. I believe that this map, this trustworthy map, is Jesus. And so uh, I want to share with you a passage from the beloved disciple. He calls himself the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. So hear the Gospel, the good news read. As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I give you these commandments so that you can love each other. Reading of God's word. So Jesus chose us and he's given us this road map, a commandment, a way to follow. And it's love. A self-sacrificing love, only possible when we remain in Christ as God's beloved. So as we begin this series, Love in Christ, I want you to recognize that this love in Christ compels us to recklessly love others 
And that, in turn, is like the love that Christ did when he died the unthinkable death for us. And when he did that, he chose to love us so much, and in turn, that love honored and loved God the Father. So Smith invites us to think creatively about the rhythms that we have and the rituals and routines that would let this good news that we're God's beloved sink in throughout the week. Uh, he's reminded of an investment banker in his book who, uh, who lives in Manhattan and has spearheaded the practice of listening to the public reading of Scripture with his colleagues on Wall Street. Or of teachers who uh, spend their morning having a, a committed time of prayer as, they, as a way to frame their daily work. There are all kinds of ways that train us to love the, uh, that train us to love the God that calls us um, and pulls us. It's like he's the father in the prodigal son, right? God is already out ahead of us. He's already down the lane, running to the end and meeting us where we are. He gives us the gifts of good rituals so that we can practice loving him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thankfully, we pursue God with God. We love because he first loved us. And so as we read the psalm this morning, and as we read scripture, and as we share in church and times of reflection, we recall the story of God's action throughout history, but specifically in the loving work of Jesus, his choice to die on the cross for us. And all of this tells us that we can trust in God's love forever. And so we say, as the psalmist does, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. You are God's beloved. This is love in Christ, and it is eternal. And it draws us into the ability to choose love and to choose to love others. But I think more than that, it doesn't just leave us with the choice set before us, but it actually compels us to bear that fruit. Being God's beloved is not based on my action or the things that I do for God, like the other brother, the older brother imagines in the story. But it's actually a state of being with God. And, you know, in that story, it seems to be unfinished. Because we're not left there just with the choice of love. And as the parable ends on a sad and open note, because love is incomplete in the story, it's because the older brother did not choose to reconcile with the prodigal. The fruit of love is giving up of oneself for the other, to love others every moment at every turn. And so I say again, love in Christ compels us. This beloved disciple of Jesus records a final story, a story about Peter and the disciples out fishing. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of them. He's going to meet them. And so the disciples are in Galilee, and they're on the lake, and they're fishing. And Jesus comes, and Peter sees him, and he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And they eat breakfast together and wander off to talk. Because Peter is in need of reconciling. He needs to hear that he's God's beloved again because just a few days before, he had said, I didn't know Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. And so John is following behind them, and he overhears Jesus ask Peter this question. Do you love me? And Jesus may be asking you this question this morning. Do you love me? There's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard. In his works of love, he says, 
Only the one who abides in love can recognize love. And in the same way, their love is to be known. He reminds us of Jesus' plea for us to remain in his love, to root our identity not in what we do, but in the fact we are God's beloved, the beloved of the Creator. And when this is where we exist, we're able to love God and others fully and to respond to Jesus' question, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. One of my mentors has introduced me to the writings of Henry Nouwen, and um, I love how Nouwen reflects on this interaction between Peter and Jesus. Uh, here's how, how he puts it. After having asked Peter three times, do you love me? Jesus says, feed my lambs. Look after my sheep. Feed my sheep. And having been assured of Peter's love, Jesus gives him the task of ministry. Now, in our context and culture, we might hear this in a very individualistic way, like as if Peter is now being sent on a heroic mission. But when Jesus speaks about shepherding, he does not want us to think about a shepherd, a brave, lonely shepherd who takes care of a large flock of obedient sheep. In many ways, he makes it clear that this ministry is a communal and a mutual experience. He wants Peter to feed his sheep and care for them, not as professionals who know their clients' problems and take care of them, but as vulnerable brothers and sisters who know and are known, who care and are cared for, who forgive and are forgiven, who love and are being loved. Somehow we have come to believe that good leadership requires a safe distance from those that we're called to lead. In a safe one-way direction, someone serves and someone is being served. Make sure you don't mix up the roles. But how can anyone lay down his life for those with whom he's not even allowed to enter into a deep personal relationship? Laying down your life means making your own faith and doubt, hope and despair, joys and sadness, courage and fear, available to others as the way of getting in touch with the Lord of life. Now and says, we are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. So the mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. Confession and forgiveness are the concrete forms in which we sinful people love one another. So Jesus has chosen us. Uh, we're this beloved of God in Christ. This is the map that we follow to love Jesus. And we need those habits. We need those practices, right? Those intentional ones to continually calibrate our heart to God. And I think those practices are most essentially the laying down of our lives to feed sheep. These are the practices of confession and forgiveness, of confessing our sins and also giving of forgiveness to others as they confess. I think this is what Jesus means when he says, this is the fruit that I want you to produce, the good fruit that you're going to be able to bear, that he's chosen us to bear. And so this is love in Christ. And as we begin this series, as Brian leads us through 1 John and the, the 
idea of the Johannian community that's grounded on this idea that we are the beloved in Christ. I hope that you remember that. I hope that you remember first and foremost that you are the beloved of Christ. I'll close with this story about the church in Ephesus, which we believe is probably uh, where John, the one who writes these letters of 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John, was living when he passed away. And so he's a very old man now, and he has to be helped into the gathering community. And the preacher is there, and he thought, how great is this that we still have the elder, the John, um, the beloved here? How great would it be for him to give the lesson? So he invited him to come up, and when it was time, John rose And he said in a shaky voice, Little children, let us love one another. And then he sat down. The preacher was probably a little shocked, but he thought, maybe I should try that and preach shorter sermons. But the next week he thought, I'm going to ask John again, and, and maybe we'll receive more wisdom. And so again the old man stood and said, Little children, Let us love one another. After the third time, the preacher came to John and he said, Don't you have something more you can teach us? Why do you use the same words? Smiling, John replied, Because it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. And so, my friends, the beloved, let us love one another because he first loved us.